Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Kia. Hello, I'm Kia, Compulsive Eater. Hi, Kia. I like to start off my talks with the following idea. Only God can quiet an addiction. And I like to start off that way because it kind of keeps me centered and reminds me that God is the reason why it is that I'm still alive, that I'm still in program, that I'm still doing any of this, and I'm so grateful to be here tonight. I'm passing around my picture so that you kind of have an idea about where it is that I've come from. That's actually not me at my top weight. That's actually probably 40 pounds um, lower than my top weight. I only have one picture of me at my top weight, and I managed to lose that. The only reason why there's one is because after a certain point, I refused to be photographed. So that's kind of giving you an idea a little bit about how I definitely qualify to be standing before you. I feel so honored to be here today. It almost brings tears to my eyes to describe what this program and God have done for me. And hopefully you will get something from what it is I'm getting ready to share. I have probably had issues with food since I was, since I can recall, age six. And it was one of those things where I just kind of ate to get by, ate to get by. And a heavy child, I was a very heavy child, um, usually one of the heaviest in every class that I was in. When I went through high school and I got my first job, I got my first job at a fast food restaurant. And that was a recipe for disaster. I gained a whole bunch of weight working at the fast food restaurant because it was the one where you could make it your way, have it your way. I did that and then some. Um, And because I, you know, I was a person who prepared the food, I could just be eating constantly. That was high school. Once I got out from my parents' supervision and loving care, I got to college, and then it was me and food. We were on, on and rolling. I think I probably gained hmm, anywhere from 30 to 40 pounds my, between my first and second years of college because it was just me and the pizza guy. I think I probably put several pizza makers' children through college. <laughs> I think that's probably a fair statement. Um, it was it was not good. I was in my last year of college before I started to think maybe this is not something that everybody does. I mean, the binging, the going to fast food restaurants and then going and eating dinner, the sneak eating, the eating things, hiding wrappers because I didn't want people to know what it was that I ate. And it was a therapist that actually brought me to oh, Breeders Anonymous. And when I finally figured out that this was just not a good thing, I was one of those people that came to OA and really felt at home here. It wasn't a situation where I came and thought, oh, no, it wasn't me. I was glad to know that there were other people doing what it was that I was doing with food. So it was really very, very helpful. And I also kind of knew when I came in the door that there wasn't anything else for me. Uh, I remember very clearly, and I started over years anonymous in Alabama, and so that's much smaller than it is here. And I remember them telling me, you know, and by the way, 
part of the things that we abstain from, we don't eat sugar. Most of us don't eat sugar because we have problems with sugar. I thought that was the most foreign concept. I mean, I could not imagine giving up sugar. Who does that? And then the people that are doing it, years and years, they're saying that they've not had sugar. And I just was like, well, okay, that might be you, but I'm going to figure out a way to be able to have it. And so I spent two years trying to figure out a way to be able to have it, and I couldn't. I would start with, okay, well, I'm just going to have a cup of this. I'm just going to have a slice of that. It never stopped. I could never go from that cup, from that slice, to stopping. It was always the next day, the next day. And then I had to figure out, well, well, you know, maybe I'm going to stop tomorrow, but for tonight, I'm not stopping tonight, so let me get in everything it is that I need to have so that tomorrow when I get back on the wagon, I'm going to be okay. But tomorrow never came. There was always a reason to eat. There was always a reason to eat. And I, if there wasn't one, I came up with one. I'd make up something so that I could have a reason to eat. And today, I'd like to say that food isn't an option for me anymore. Just the same way, and I, I'm not to offend anybody in the room who has you know, other addictions, but like crack cocaine is not an op- option for me today. It's not an option, never been an option. Like when I'm upset, not an option. So in the same way that that's not an option for me, food is not an option. So I've got to come up with something else. But as long as food is an option, it will always be an option. You'll always eat because it's an option. So you kind of have to take food off the the choices that we have to deal with things. And that freedom, today, the food obsession is removed. And I've been in programs since 2001, and I won't say that that's been true for the last 10 years. That has not been true. It actually took me probably about nine years, and I was abstaining most of that time. But, it t- I, but I still would have eaten. I wasn't eating, but I would have eaten because the compulsion was still there. And I couldn't figure out why it wouldn't leave. Like when I would see all these people with these 20 years of abstinence and 30 years and all these people talking about, and these very thin people talking about, you know, what their life was like. And I just couldn't figure out, how do I get that? Well, I'll tell you kind of how it is that I got that. Service. I, I, it was a service position that I undertook um, in the inner group. Um, I'm from the Inland Empire. I'm from San Bernardino, California. And I took up over a service position. It was the Region 2 representative. And that, the, the job basically is you go to the Region 2 assemblies and you represent um, the interests of your inner group. And so it's kind of like a big little mini vacation where you get to commune with other compulsive eaters and you get to represent the interests of your fellowship. I mean, it, it, it's fabulous. When I got there and I saw all the recovery on that board, when I got there and I saw how thin they all were, I just was like, oh, I'm wondering, because I always thought that, you know, maybe these people could really lose the weight, but could I? And I wasn't really happy at the point at which all this happened to me, but I just wasn't able to kind of break that barrier. And what I was figuring out is that there were foods that I wasn't willing to give up. And until I was willing to let go of all of it, all of the alcoholic foods, and willing to work the steps, that's when it happened for me. And that's when the compulsion was gone. And it is the most amazing thing ever. And that's, hopefully when you kind of hear what it is that's happened to me, you'll kind of see why it is that I say what it is that I'm saying. I haven't, the way that my talks usually kind of come together, because every talk that I do is very, very different. Usually the date approaches, I'm thinking about it, it's kind of 
coming together in my mind and then there'll be a night I can't sleep or I'll wake up and it'll be two in the morning and all of a sudden the talk is there. I go and I type it out and that's what it is and that's what I'm doing and it's good. This didn't happen for me this time. So that's why I was sitting before we, we were getting ready to do this and I was like, okay, it didn't come together for me, but I do have the strong intuition that there's experience that I'm going through currently that I need to share with you. So this will be very, very different from anything that I have ever talked about before. I am currently going through a divorce. And what I wanted to share about is kind of how it is that I do my recovery practices and how I use the 12 steps to get through this kind of awfulness. Because that's where really... The rubber meets the road in program is, you know, it's all nice to talk about being kind. It's all nice to talk about being loving. It's nice to talk about all of these spiritual concepts until you're really, your feet are on the fire and you got to decide what you're going to do. So I believe that God, every single day, I feel like I've kind of, the only image that kind of comes to my mind is that I'm walking on a pond and At every place where I think, oh my gosh, this is the place where I'm going to sink, another hand, another something comes up under my feet. And I'm like in the middle, I'm nowhere near where I need to be as far as the end of this process, but I'm in the middle of the pond, and I'm still on the water. I have been carried by angels. That's really the only way that I can explain it. I have been carried by angels throughout this entire process. There has not been one need, not one anything that has not been met. If I have put it up to God, God has taken care of it. So let me tell you first what it is that I'll do, that I do, and then I'm going to get into what has happened to me. And hopefully I'll have time to finish it off. What I do every day as far as my recovery practices, I try more or less to work the 12 steps every single day in one shape, form, fashion, or what have you. I try to use the tools, as many of them as I can, every single day. Now, some people are going to look at, see what it is that I do, and think, oh my gosh, I have no idea how it is that she does that. And I'll tell you, I am a mom of infant twins. My twins are 22 months old. And if I can do it, um, if I can do it, that's all I'm going to say. Okay, because I I work a full-time job, I've got two very small kids um, trying to do programs, trying to be of service, trying to live a life. It's one of those things I made time to eat, and now I'm doing everything it is that I can to make sure that I make time to save my life. Because that's really what we're talking about here, life and death. And as you can see from my pictures, that's probably about 240 in that picture. Um, This disease will kill you if you're not willing to do everything it is you can to save your life. So... Every single day, I read at least five pages of some recovery program literature. I journal every single day. I make three phone calls every single day. I go to one to two meetings a week because my child care situation, kind of, I would go to more, but my child care situation doesn't really lend itself to going to more face-to-face meetings. I sponsor, and I am sponsored. I meditate. Every single day. And I emphasize the every single day part because for me, if I stop doing it, then it doesn't work. I can't stay clean today on yesterday's shower. I have to keep showering. I have to keep doing what it is that I need to do every day to keep getting the gifts that I've been given. 
Um, when I'm talking about doing journaling every day, sometimes the journaling is pages and sometimes it's a paragraph. But it's the discipline that is keeping me going and that discipline, that commitment to myself to take care of myself. Now, I'm not going to lie. There are times when I'm up at 1 o'clock in the morning because my day didn't allow for me to do all the stuff that I just told you. So sometimes I'm up until 1 o'clock, but I don't let my head hit the pillow until all the things that I need to do are done. I do a nightly 10-step, and my 10-step goes to my sponsor every single day. I keep a food log, and my food log is on my phone, and I send it by email every single day. My disease does not take a vacation, so I am on vacation doing everything it is I just told you about. On Christmas Day, I will be doing everything it is, God willing, that I just told you about. So these are the things that stay constant in order to allow me to experience the gifts that I have. And they are gifts. And it's not one of those things that I can just say, well, you know, I don't really need to do that today. Oh, yeah, I do need to do that today. Because if I don't, the food can come back. Just because right now and today the problem is removed, the food problem is removed, doesn't mean it won't be if I don't continue to do what it is that I need to do. So as far as working the steps, and this is something that it took me nine years in the program to figure out. And you guys may have it, so if you have it, it was an epiphany for me, so I'll just say it. I always thought that working the steps was answering questions out of the Brown Book. That's what I thought. And I didn't have any sponsors or anybody else to tell me that that wasn't what it was. The 12 steps, that's your life. That's how it is you roll, how it is that you're walking through the world, how you're seeing God's children, and every one of us are, in my opinion, God's children. How it is that you're interacting with them, how it is that you're interacting with yourself, the things you say to yourself, the things that you don't say to yourself. Language is so powerful. And so when you're telling yourself things about, oh, well, I'm too stupid, or I'm not good enough, or all this different stuff, all of those things are just, they're not allowing you to shine the way that you need to shine. And so I try very hard not to tell myself those things and not to tell other people those things either in the various ways that we do that to each other. But it's about life. Working the 12 steps is about how you're living your life. It's about the service that you're willing to do or not do. It's about your motives in doing service. Are you doing service so that you can, people can see how cool you are? Or are you doing service because this program has given you so much and there is no way, no way, in a million years of service, if I did service every single day, that I could repay this program for what it's giving me. There's no way I could repay it. So it's just every day I have to try and just put a little bit more on my side of the ledger so that I can just have an attempt at being able to repay the program for the life that it's given to me. So that's kind of what it is that I do every single day. Um, I pray it's different. My prayers have changed, and because I'm kind of more or less in constant dialogue with God, I don't pray the way that I used to. Like, I used to just pray in the morning, then I would pray before I ate, and then I would pray at night, and that was all good for where it was that I was at. When I first started my relationship with God, where I was really kind of aware that, you know, God was out there, it was kind of this drive through mentality. Mm-hmm. So I'd go get up to the window, okay, God, I'd like... A partner, I would like a car, I would like to live here, I would like to live there. And then the expectation, of course, you know, then you go and you give whatever to the first window and that the second window, you get it. But that's not, that's not exactly how it is that God works in my experience. And that's for the good, because most of the time I don't even know what it is that I want. And God has the 
big lens. My lens is very small, so I have no idea how it is that things are working and how things are kind of coming together. That's why it is that I've kind of sat back and said, okay, well, let me let you have this. And that has been a much better way to roll through life than what I was doing before. And so from that drive-through God experience that I used to have, then it kind of went to, okay, well, then I guess I need to pray. But I wasn't meditating, so I was talking, but I wasn't really listening. And then I started to meditate. And then I started to really figure out what working the steps was. And that, by the way, the steps and the program, this is it. There is not anything else theoretically that one needs to have other than this big book in order to really do the program. Everything else is a nice addition. Everything else is, is nice support, but this is it. So if you can figure out how to get a sponsor who actually does the program the way, this is all my opinion for the record, who does it out of the big book, I think that made a huge difference in my ability to really be recovered from this illness. Not cured, recovered. So the problem is gone, not where I'm sitting there and white-knuckling it all the time, where I don't want to eat. And that's the kind of life that we're trying to get, that we're all trying to get, that I remember sitting where you guys are sitting and saying, how is it that they're doing it? And this is how it was that I got it, this big book. So I'll just put that there. I wanted to make sure that I said that because uh, sometimes it's very confusing um, for people who are new, especially, what the program is. And a lot of people will tell you a lot of things, and that's just my two cents. Um, but anyway, I, I had a thought, and I was on a, a roll, and then the train kind of got derailed a little bit. That's okay, though, because uh, God will bring me back. <sighs> Food plans versus abstinence. That's something that I definitely want to make sure that I cover before I get into the rest of it, because it is kind of how it is that I'm doing what it is that I'm doing. My food plan, three meals a day, no recreational sugar, cakes, cookies, pies, etc., etc. Um, very, very limited white flour, because most white flour things bother me. Um, I just do whole, um, whole grains, fruits, vegetables, lean meats, that kind of thing. Um, I just try to really involve God in all my food choices. When I do that, it's very clear. Broccoli, cheeseburger. It's very clear, probably, where God is wanting me to be. And so I just try to stay on, on the God side of things. Abstinence. I realized that for a long time I was abstaining from certain things, but that didn't mean that I was abstinent. And what do I mean? Because that can be especially confusing to people that are new in the program. Abstinence, according to our fellowship, is the action of refraining from compulsive overeating and compulsive eating behaviors while maintaining or working towards a healthy body weight. That is our definition of abstinence. In my estimation and in my belief system, that is the same for everybody. People's food plans are different, but that concept is the same. So your food plan may call for one thing or another thing that's different from somebody else's, but either you're eating compulsively or engaging in compulsive eating behaviors or you're not. And until you can get clear with yourself, and it's okay to be where it is that one is at during the process, but if you keep lying to yourself and saying, oh, well, it's really not that bad, or oh, well, I, you know, if I just have this, you just need to look at it. I needed to look at it, because that was the only way that not inability to look at really what I was eating and being honest about it, that kept weight on me. And when I was willing to let those things go, the weight left me. So now, in the beginning, in the beginning, food was the end-all and be-all, and it was all about the food. 
And once I bottomed out on the food and got abstinent, and the problem was removed, then it wasn't about the food at all, and it was just about me. Just about me. So hopefully that background will kind of give you some idea about where we're going with the story. Okay, so I mentioned that I'm going through a divorce. And it's probably been, the breakdown of this relationship has probably been, I would say, at least since the earlier part of the year. And I say that only because I remember having thoughts Um, And my partner, X, is a female, so I'll just say that so it's just out on the table right now, so I don't have to. Okay. Um, I remember thinking, I remember thinking that I don't think that we're going to be able to stay together because I'm not in integrity in this relationship. I remember having those thoughts about nine months ago. And I was hoping that I was wrong about that, but it was an intuition that I continued to get. My ex... She worked a lot, and she wasn't home a lot, and I'm not really sure because I choose not to get into what it was that happened because it really is immaterial to the fact of the fact that we're not together anymore. So what happened or didn't happen really is, you know, it kind of is what it is as far as that goes. But I knew that things were not right, and I knew that there was something amiss, something going on, something she wasn't telling me. And so that's what I mean when I say we weren't in integrity in the relationship. And so it's kind of, in some ways, I feel like my life right now is a giant correction. So all of the things that were not in integrity are now being removed, and I'm getting into integrity, or God is forcing me to get into integrity. And in a lot of ways, I kind of feel like my life, if it were a house, has been broken down to the studs. I mean, that we are there, okay? We are really, really there. So that was nine months ago. Um, We had decided to separate back in June. And in August, kind of expectedly, but kind of unexpectedly, she announced that she was moving out. And when we decided that we were going to separate, I really wasn't, I wasn't upset because I'm kind of the type of person, I really believe that relationships, they come, relationships go. They don't all last forever. You hope that they do. But Sometimes it just doesn't work out. So I wasn't angry. My ex, she had different feelings about things. And so that made things a little bit more challenging. And I'm trying to be careful in how I'm phrasing all of this because I really do not want it to come across as she's a bad person. She's a wonderful person. Probably one of the most wonderful people I have ever met, as a matter of fact. Because she's been so hurt, traumatized, angry about things that have happened between us, it's kind of caused her to act out a little bit. And so I kind of keep that in mind when I'm thinking about her, keeping, keeping that in mind when I have to share this experience with other people. But in order for you to kind of get what it is that I'm doing, you kind of have to have some background in all of this. Anyway, um, so we had a house together, um, and when she left, she was like, okay, I've got nothing, and I don't know what to tell you about the bills, and we have kids. And we have a very big home, very large home, very, very large, expensive home. And basically, it was on my own. I was, it was just me, on my own, having to be responsible for all of it. I decided, well, okay, we won't even go there. Let me back up, because this is also germane to the story. Prior to us getting married, and we are legally married, 
getting ready to be legally divorced, but we were legally married. Um, prior to that, so before she even announced that she was moving out, I... No, I need to back up even further. I have a rental property. It was my property prior to us getting married. And then when we got married and we bought our house, I rented it out. Okay, so before she announced that she was moving out, and I, I had always kept it rented, so it wasn't a problem. There was a situation with my unit, my condo that I'm now currently living in, where um, I was called away unexpectedly um, to my unit because my tenant that was in there, unbeknownst to me, had his son living there, who was the early 20s. And while the tenant was at work, the son was playing with a gun. The gun shot off, went through my wall into my neighbor's building, neighbor's unit. Could have killed somebody. My neighbor, understandably upset, um, asked me to get rid of him. I'm sitting here thinking about all of this. How am I going to pay for this condo? Because we were already kind of tight on money. How is this all going to work? And it's funny because I have been trying to get rid of this condo like forever. I mean, it has been hanging like a noose around my neck and there was nothing that I could do to get rid of it. And now, because this condo, my condo had been rented until August of next year. Now I'm facing a situation where I'm going to have to pay this, this mortgage myself until I can get somebody else in it. And the guy doesn't want to go. So I ended up having to evict him. Now, when my ex left in September, late August and September, and left me with it all, all of a sudden, now I have my condo available. And now I know why it is that this all happened, because if it hadn't happened, I would be responsible for the mortgage on the house, the mortgage on my condo, plus a rental place. But God had all of that worked out. He had it all worked out, and I didn't have to do anything with it. When I actually did get my condo back from the eviction process, it was in really good condition. And I don't know how many of you know how tenants can leave property. (laughs) But that in and of itself, a miracle. And the thing that was most miraculous is that because I was going through all this stuff with the pending divorce, I couldn't even think about this eviction process. I couldn't even think about how this guy was going to get. I couldn't even think about it. And that was the only thing at that particular point in my life that I was able to just completely turn over and God took care of that. He didn't let the guy, he didn't, the guy didn't end up going to court because if we had gone to court, that would have been months trying to talk about an eviction. None of that happened. I didn't end up having to pay anything other than just to get the locks changed in the actual court process itself. So when I look at that, and I look about how badly that could have gone, and how God made sure that my condo was ready the month that I needed a place. Not a month later, not two months earlier, the month that I needed a place. It can only be described as a miracle. Miracle number two, this big house that I could no longer afford. My real estate agent, when she found out that um, we were in a situation, my real estate agent brought one buyer to my house while it was in a very bad stage of being moved out. I'm getting rid of getting all my stuff out. It's all in disarray. Brought the buyer to the house. Buyer put an offer in that day, full price, no concessions, no closing costs. I mean, in this market, really, I didn't have to list it, didn't have to market it, didn't have to clean it, didn't have to show it. We close that square next week. 
I mean, and these buyers have like almost $100,000 they put down. The appraisal came out. And I didn't worry about any of that because I knew if God brought the buyers, then there's nothing to worry about. Nothing to worry about. I financed a vehicle for my ex. Because love, you know about love. I don't have to explain that to anybody in this room. And that was one of the things that when, you know, it hit the fan, oh, hands off, and I don't know what to tell you about this vehicle. And all I could do was say, God, I have no idea what the plan is on this truck, and I do not want my credit ruined. You're going to have to give me something. I know you've got a plan here, so I'm just waiting for you to reveal it. Why did I get a check in the mail for the amount of the shortfall and thousands of dollars check in the mail that I was not expecting for the shortfall on this truck? So there it is. I mean, there's no other way to explain it. I have nothing in terms of an explanation. And that kind of thing just continues to happen, continues to happen, and continues to happen. The timeshare with my ex, as far as our kids are concerned. Oh, we have laughter and smiles. I'm assuming that people have some idea where, where we're going with all of this. Um, it wasn't so much that I did not want to share custody with my ex, because that really wasn't the situation. My ex worked a lot and was gone a lot and wanted 50-50 custody. And to me, that was not reasonable, because if they're going to be in you know, a sitter's care or someone else's care, they can be with me. And so that was pretty much my position. So we ended up in a very, 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 very nasty and very expensive, and we're still actually in this process, ongoing kind of a court battle. And what, and I, you know, chose kind of not to really worry about it because I knew that whatever it was that God had in mind, it was going to work out, and I was going to be okay no matter what. The day before the court hearing, which was now a month and a half ago, I just prayed, God, you know, whatever it is that needs to happen here, just make me okay. Whatever it is that needs to happen here, just make me okay. I was able to sleep the night before the court hearing when I got to the courthouse and I saw my ex. And did I mention she has a beautiful face? I looked in that face and she, I could just tell that she was in so much pain. Every single bit of resentment, every single bit of resentment left me just like that. Just like that. And all I could feel was compassion for her. And I'm leaving out a lot of things because if I revealed those things, it would A, be disrespectful to her, and B, be disrespectful to our relationship, and C, it would turn this into a different kind of story. So I really, it's probably better for me to leave out the really nastier aspects of it. But it was a lot to get over, let's just put it that way. It was a lot to get over. And I didn't have to be hateful towards her. And it doesn't matter what it is that she's doing. It doesn't matter what it is that she's doing. I can just allow her to spin like a top, because that's kind of where we're at with that. But I can be okay no matter what. And that's the relationship that I have with God. That is just, and through the work of the 12 steps and through the work of the tools every day and the self-care that I'm, 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 I, I keep going back to. It's amazing. It's amazing. Last weekend, and I have to share the, share the story, and then I'll try to open it up for questions. 
we were supposed to have a yard sale, and my ex picked the dates. She's a person who does yard sales. I mean, this is, you know, she does estate sales. I mean, like, does them, not, like, goes to them, but, I mean, she organizes them, prices things. She, that's what she does. And so she was going to have our yard sale so that we could get rid of a lot of the stuff that we have in our house. And she set the dates. She set the times. She did the advertising and everything. We were supposed to start at 7. She calls me at 6.45, saying we were going to do it for two days. She says, Kia... I'm sorry, but I'm not coming in today, and I'm not coming tomorrow. You're going to have to do it all yourself. And the intuition that I got, don't be mad. Just love her. Don't be mad. And so I, you know, I said, okay, what is it that I need to do? And she basically broke down what it was that I needed to do and kind of how it was that I needed to do. But I've never done a yard sale before, and we had a lot of stuff. So all I'm thinking about is how am I going to do this? I hung up the phone with her, and I started to sob. I mean, we're not talking about, like, boo-hoo, a little bit of crime. We're talking about, oh, my gosh, I got all this stuff in this house, and I have no idea how I'm going to get rid of any of it by myself. Then I get this intuition, another one of God's angels, call your realtor. So 7.15 in the morning after I pulled myself together and still slinging snot and all this kind of stuff, call my realtor. Such and so. Oh, my gosh. She flaked on me. She's not coming today. She's not coming tomorrow. She's not coming. Oh, my gosh. What am I going to do? My real estate angel comes in and says, you know what? Let me brush my teeth on on the way over. She comes over. She comes over. She brings her associate, the associate who actually is the real estate agent for the buyers, brings the buyers, the buyer's family, buyers of the house, brings them all over. So there's like seven or eight of us taking money, selling stuff, keeping me company, keeping my spirits up. And the deal that my ex made with me was that I could keep all the money from the sale since I was doing it by myself. I was able to keep all the money. I didn't have to split any of it. And I knew it would be okay because God has been telling me over and over and over. And I have to look up and I'm like, really? Okay, I got it. I got it. Don't worry. Don't worry. Everything's covered. The next day, sold out. I mean, I mean... A lot of money on that yard sale that I didn't have to split. And my ex, because she really, A, doesn't want to sell the house, B, doesn't want to sell any of the things in it, she wouldn't have done anything but held everything up. That's what she would have done if she had actually been there. And so it was like God knew she didn't need to be there. God knew that I needed to take care of it if it was going to be taken care of. And God put the people and the angels in my life to make all of it happen. And it's like at this point, I don't have to worry about anything because I know from practice that God is taking care of it all. And I don't have to worry about anything. No matter what it is that happens, I'm okay. And that's what it is that I would like to share with you. Let me see how it is. I think I've got a couple more minutes. The last really important thing that I think I want to share is how is it I'm going to be able to deal with trust again because trust is one of those things that it's very easy to break, very hard to build. How do I go on from here? And I'm going to tell you the idea that God gave me. And if it helps anybody, I I just really hope it helps somebody in this room because I feel that somebody needs to hear this. What if we started from a place that sometimes people are going to be trustworthy and sometimes people are not going to be trustworthy? There's not a 100% trustworthy person on the planet. All the time. I've spent my life looking for this person. They don't exist. But what if I just trusted 
that sometimes you're going to be trustworthy, and when you are, that's okay. And sometimes you're not, but no matter whether you're trustworthy, acting in a trustworthy manner, or you're not, I'm still okay, and I can stand it. It may hurt. I may hurt a lot. But that doesn't mean that it's going to break me. So I don't have to worry about whether I can trust you or I can't trust you. I don't have to worry about whether or not it's all in you or whether or not it's not. If you start with the given that people are human and fallible, even me. I mean, I've let people down, not intentionally, but I have. And that doesn't mean I'm a bad person. It just means, you know, I'm a human person. And if I start with the premise that people are humans and they're going to make mistakes and sometimes it's going to work out and sometimes it's not, I don't have to worry about whether or not somebody's going to be trustworthy. I just have to worry about whether or not I can trust myself and God. Mm-hmm. And that is what it is that I'd like to share today. Thank you so much for listening. The question is, where do I get the motivation to do all the things that I do every single day? The motivation comes in the form of two of the most amazing and wonderful little beings that God could ever have put on this planet, my twins. I look at these little girls' faces, and there isn't a thing that I wouldn't do for them. If I continued to eat compulsively and put myself at risk, I wouldn't be here for them. Or if I am here for them, I would not be the kind of mom that could give them what they deserve. And so for me, I have to be the woman that I want them to be. And that's what keeps me doing and motivated. Thank you.